0: And welcome to the City Grace Podcast. We're so happy you've decided to join us today as we learn how amazing it is to follow Jesus. Enjoy the message. I absolutely love big family. I love being together with big family. I love football games with everybody around and burgers and hot dogs and and kids kind of running around and annoying you and wiping barbecue sauce on the couch and all that kind of grace. I love it. I love it. I love it when it's hot outside. Um, I love it when the kids um, come over our house and they leave their plates, you know, with some of the food, like on the table. And then my dog, Ringo, he's a boxer. He goes and he kind of finishes what they left out as a gift for my dog, Ringo, right? And I mean, Ringo loves it when the kids come over on family days too. And, and uh, so I, I just love family time. Anybody else love getting together with family? Yeah, some of you are like, no, you don't know my family. Like, I, don't, I don't enjoy that at all. It's a nightmare, right? Like you dread Thanksgiving. and I get it. I get it. Listen, if you need a place to go Thanksgiving, Christmas, go to James and Sonia's. They're good people. They'll love you. And, um, But I do, I love, I love big family. And also, it, I, I think it's kind of interesting in my family. We grew up this way. You know, when you grow up with something, you just think it's normal and like everybody's like that. And then you you kind of realize, no, we're kind of weird. Like you know, and, and uh, in my family, we grew up with endless ridicule and teasing. I mean, it was just always there, always cracking on each other, always just tearing each other down, just being really horrible people to each other. You know, and and actually, my brother Jason, y'all know my brother Jason. Um, he's the one in the lobby that shines his head right before service. Um, Jason has been a fantastic source. Uh oh. Did we lose the projectors? It's Jason. I started talking about Jason. I don't know. Did they turn off? It says installing software. Taylor is running our projectors this morning. You guys want to guess who her dad is? <laughs> yep. It's Jason. Um, you could just leave him off, Taylor. It's all right. I'll get through this without... Those notes—they weren't that important anyway. All right. So in my family, um, it just endless ridicule, endless teasing, uh, endless—you uh, know—insults and, and degrading comments. You know, from my brother to me, really, my whole life. But it's it's been nice to see him really step up his game in the past few years. I can always count on Jason to not let my head um, get. Bigger uh, and and just to really keep me grounded and humble, and he's always been that way. He's no respecter of persons. I remember uh, when Chelsea first became part of our family, when we first you know got married. Jason teased her and made her cry like all the time. He really—I'm not joking. That's not that one's not a joke. You can ask Jason. He really did, and uh, really just kind of made her life miserable for about the first 19 years of our marriage. Yeah, and uh, but we all need people, maybe not to insult. There's Jason right there. Huh? She's better for it? <laughs> We're all going to watch Jason. Everybody, watch Jason right now. Take all the time you need. Can anybody clap your hands if you're glad to see him go? Yeah, gotcha. Um, Where was I? Jesus is good, devil's bad, and there we go. We all need people to speak into our lives. We, we, those are my whole notes right there. Sermon's done. Everybody go home. Um stupid projector. Yes, I agree. I don't know if we're supposed to say stupid in church, but I agree right now. But we all need people not to insult us, but who can keep it real with us. Hello. people who can tell us like it is. and we don't have, you guys are all amen and now, like all of a sudden you're real vigorous about this. Like, we don't naturally like that, though, right? I mean, nobody likes to be kind of, you know, told to, to back it up a little bit and calm down. It's not intuitive. It's not comfortable. But honestly, these voices that kind of have access into our lives, they can keep us from damaging ourselves or kind of heading down harmful paths or, or heading down harmful. We, we need people that have access and that have permission to speak into our lives. But here's the thing with Christians. Not all of us have this experience in Christian family. Not all of us have um, the, these, these people in our lives who have access to speak to us within our church family. And if you're a Christian, or if you're one of, you want to be a Christian, or maybe you were a Christian, you're thinking about being a Christian again, listen, that's got to change. In fact, this might be you know, part of why you struggled with being a Christian before. Maybe maybe you were a Christian, or maybe your parents or your family called themselves Christian at some point, but it didn't really feel like a big part of life. Well, it turns out that by design, having a church family, having a Christian family, a family of believers, it's a huge component to the Christian faith. You're supposed to have voices in your life that can speak into your life. And we kind of talked last week a little bit about how religion can kind of devolve into this kind of personal thing, right? And we we come up with these personal measures of holiness, like how many church services do I attend? Or, you know, how many minutes a day do I pray? How many verses um, a week in in the Bible do I read on my own? But the early church didn't even have a Bible. The early church didn't even have church buildings for the most part. They met together in homes all the time, right? They didn't even have a New Testament. And, And so how did they measure their connectedness to God when there was only one church service a week for most of them, meeting together in a house. And they didn't have bands. They didn't have projectors that would go out in the middle of service. They didn't have any of these things. But still, there was something about the early church, the early, church, the early part of the Jesus movement that was so attractional to the world around them. There was something about the, the early church. I mean, when you think of how they started Like, is this knockoff, almost this knockoff Jewish religion that was so persecuted. People were trying to stop the movement, like intent on, on shutting it down, and yet it began to flourish in all of that, in a world that was so divided, so much more divided than the world we live in today. And we think that our world's divided. We have no clue just how hurtful and, 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 and brutal and violent and divided the world and people can actually uh, become. And, and when it came to persecution in, in the city of Jerusalem, which kind of signified the, the, the center of, of Jewish life, and when it came to persecution from Rome, who kind of signified persecution just from national and secular life, the people around the Christians... As they began to see them be persecuted and and kind of attacked from the outside, there was something about the early church, something about the way they lived with each other and, and, and kind of loved on each other that just became so attractive to the world around them that all of the world around them said, I want what you have. And in those early days of the church life, the church boomed. I mean, its growth was exponential, It exploded into the Roman world, so that by a couple of hundred years after Rome crucified its founder, the church became the official religion of the very empire that had put Jesus to death. It was incredible. The story was improbable. You could not have written it as fiction. So how was their experience as the church? What did they have that we don't have? How were they so radically different from us that it produced such a much different attitude towards Christianity and Christians than what we see maybe going on in our world, in our our time today? And you might guess from from my message today, from the title, from the the screen, from the the table out in the lobby, part of the thing that happened there, part of what made them so attractional was their small group life. Now, they didn't call it small groups back then. They called it like church because that's as big as their churches were. Eight people, ten people, and then it started growing and growing and growing. But as they grew, again, they didn't have buildings. They didn't have possessions. They didn't have programs and, and, and big campuses or all of these things. They still kept it cellular. They kept it really, really small. And um, we had it, you know, as I think about this this way of being a Christian as they, as they were in the, in the early century, the early first century and the early parts of Christianity, they just they they lived out this small group life that we're trying so desperately to make part of who we are here at City Grace, and, and we think about this, and we talk about this a lot behind the scenes. David, Melissa, and I um, had a lot of con- have had a lot of conversations about this um, with them, uh, Tony and Sarah, who were here before, that kind of kicked off our small group ministry. We've talked about this a lot, and, and one of the themes, and one of the ideas that we have come up with, and honestly, the wording around it is not ours, like we weren't smart enough to come up with this on our own, but one of the, the, the themes that came out of this is that circles are better than rows, Circles are better than rows. Circles are better than rows. See, we're all sitting in rows today, right? And in rows, I'm not saying that rows aren't important, but here's the thing. In rows, you hear ideas. In rows, you hear messages. In rows, you hear sermons or values or the teachings of Jesus. But the place where you kind of walk those out and put them into practice, the the place in the area of life where you kind of experience those things and, and kind of test out some of the things that you have heard in the rows are in your circles. Whether it's the circle of your family, the circles that you have at work, or whatever. It's where you interact with people face to face. The place where your faith kind of intersects with God's faithfulness happens in circles and not here in rows. But unfortunately... A lot of people's idea of church and the whole church thing and religion is that church is for rows, and we come to church on Sundays, and we sit in rows, and hopefully not for too long, and then maybe the preacher gives you a prayer to pray, right, and that's how I make things right with the angry old man in the sky, and then I get to go to the good place when I die, but rows were never intended to be the church model, With Jesus, his intent and his purpose was to turn us kind of away from a vertical orientation because in rows, it's all vertical. I come to a row and and then I just kind of make sure that this is all good and I never really interact side to side. But Jesus came to kind of reorient us. Jesus actually made it a point to say that your horizontal relationships, the people around you, the people next to you, actually prove the health of your vertical relationship with God. And that was revolutionary. And people had never heard this. And he said things like, hey, if you come to the temple and you bring your sacrifice to the temple and you're standing in line, and we don't even really get this because we never had to go to the temple and bring a sacrifice, they'd have to stand in a line, travel for miles. Travel for miles and days sometimes bringing an animal sacrifice. And he said, look, when you get to the front of the line and like you're next, and then you remember, oh, wait. My brother or my sister, like, there's this beef we have back home. There's, a, there's an argument that wasn't settled. He said, look, you leave your offering there. Don't go give it to God. You go all the way back home, and you make that relationship right, and then you come back, and you bring your offering to God. And people were wondering, like, that's crazy. It should be God first. Should be God first and everybody else second. And Jesus was saying, No, the way that you put God first is actually by putting other people first, putting His children first. That actually honors God as first in your life because then you're truly reflecting the heart of God. And people's minds were blown and it didn't make sense and they didn't like it. But in the Jesus movement, we love the one through loving the everyone. In in the Jesus movement, we prove our love for the one by our love for the everyone. The majority of the work of following Jesus is done face-to-face and not shoulder-to-shoulder. That's good. That's good. Come on, say it with me. The majority of the work following Jesus is done face-to-face, not shoulder-to-shoulder. See, that was a slide. If I had a slide... I wouldn't have had to have you repeat it with me. <laughs> but there are a lot of reasons that this is so vital and so important to who we are as a church. And today, I just want to talk about one, but I think it's a big one. I think it's, it's so very important. And it has to do with the fact that, honestly, individually, we tend to drift. Individually, we don't naturally kind of drift towards God. We usually drift towards bad things, right? We naturally drift away from everything that's holy and wholesome. Have you ever noticed just, I mean, like, take the church thing out of the equation for a little bit. Have you ever noticed that you don't drift usually in good directions personally? Nobody ever drifts into good health. Right? You drift into Chick-fil-A. Come on, you drift into a size 40 waist. Can I hear? No, no amens from anybody. You drift into bad eating habits. You drift into avoiding the gym. You drift into avoiding exercise. You drift into busting your budget. You drift into borrowing money. We drift relationally. And the thing is, we drift spiritually if we're not intentional about making progress to move us toward God. You will never drift. You will never fall or trip and land in a good, healthy relationship with God. Your relationship with the heavenly Father takes intentionality. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes discipline, it takes worship, and that's a huge part of your relationship with God. It's why the mu- the music you listen to is so important. You need someone to describe God in new ways to you so that your heart is drawn to him. Music is hugely important in the Christian life. Art, Christian art is hugely important. Poetry and nature and beauty, all of these things aren't fluff to the Christian life. They are necessary components to constantly reorient our hearts to see God in new and beautiful ways because you'll Never drift closer to God. And so you have to be intentional about developing your relationship with God. You have to be intentional about living out that relationship with God with others, face-to-face more than just shoulder-to-shoulder. Because if you're not intentional, you will drift. We will drift. And the current of life almost never takes us in a good direction by accident. And again, this isn't just a spiritual thing, right? If you're trying to have a healthy marriage, you can't drift into it. If you want better relationships with your kids, you won't accidentally have those. If you want a better career, you want to be advanced at work, that doesn't happen by accident. If you want financial soundness, you don't accidentally drift into the circumstances that you one day hope to end up with. And so, one of the core ingredients of the Christian faith is that we walk this journey of faith together intentionally. Somebody say intentionally. Here's the thing. We have been saved individually. We've been called individually. But once we are saved and called, we are placed into a collective body. When we are called with individual purpose, we are called to live out that purpose in a collective body. And this has existed as the church model for 2,000 years. There was something taught and lived out by the very first followers of Jesus that said that you actually can't forsake the assembling of yourselves together with other Christians. You can't get away from that. You can't be a lone ranger Christian. You have to hold on to walking together if you're going to be a Jesus follower. And so they wrote lots of stuff about walking together, and then they put it down in all these different letters that were later on gathered up into what we call the New Testament. And just to kind of give you some background, your Bible is divided into two parts, right? The old part and the new part. It's called the Old Testament Testament. And the New Testament. And the word testament is kind of a a translation off the word covenant, and we don't really use the word covenant anymore. Um, But a covenant is kind of like this relational contract that you might have with somebody. It's not maybe as cold as just a, a plain contract, but it's not just as fluffy as just a relationship. There are boundaries and parameters. And so the Old Testament was God's kind of the history of God having a covenant, a relationship with one nation, the nation of Israel, and there's a reason for that. I don't have time to go into it today. But the New Testament, the new covenant, the new part of your Bible is about the the details of of the covenant between God and everybody else. And so the New Testament is a collection of documents written after Jesus came on the scene. And it was written by his followers for his followers, written, and, and this is hugely important, written within about 10 to 60 years after Jesus was off the scene, which is really, really important because the people that study this stuff say that you can't have myths or fables unless you have stories that were written like uh, 80 to 100 years after the events happened. And the reason that that's the case is because that all the eyewitnesses have to die first. There can't be anybody on the scene who can contradict what's written and spread around. But all of the Jesus documents that we have, all of the New Testament documents that we have were written within 10 to 60 years of Jesus being on the scene. Some people think that uh, one, one of the letters, I think it's 1 Corinthians, may have been written within like five years. There were already these traditions being passed around among people. So like you can trust this stuff. It's not fable that got invented hundreds of years later. It was written there while it's going on. And so as you read your Bible, I hope this maybe helps you a little bit and makes things a little bit clearer for you. The New Testament is the part that you need to kind of take to heart and begin to work on in your life. And the Old Testament kind of gives you the history of how and why the New Testament is here for us in the first place. So, in this New Testament collection, there's this one document, this one letter, that we call the Book of Hebrews. It was written to Hebrew Christians, which were kind of like Jewish Christians. And and we don't know who wrote it, um, but it was famous in the early church. and, And tons of copies of what we call the Book of Hebrews um, were made. And it's, it's interesting, and again, just kind of, uh, I'm a nerd for this stuff. Archaeology and, and history have found copies of this book all over the world, I mean, and all of the copies match up. It's pretty incredible, actually. But history is important for today's message, or history. Hebrews, I'm struggling with all this. History. I have a beard here on my microphone, and it is distracting me. Where's Jason? I think he put it there. Hebrews is important for today's message because it gives us so much information on being together, living for God together, walking this faith thing out together. And, and, And the writer tells us in these verses that we're going to look at here, the writer tells us why it is so vital to being a Christian that we live this Christian life together. And so the writer of this thing that we call Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12 He says, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Now, who in their right mind would turn away from the living God? Come on. Who would be so silly? Who would be so foolish? as to know in their heart that there is a living God, to know in their heart that there's a right and a wrong and that this living God wants us to do right and then just do wrong anyway. Who would do that? You. That's you. That's me, right? That's all of us. poke somebody and tell them tell he's talking to you. And so he's talking to all of us. See to it, brothers and sisters, members of this Christian family. I know who you guys are. I know what you guys are capable of. And we know he's right. We've all done this. We've all turned our backs on the living God. We've lived whole seasons of life, years of life that we wish we could erase. We wish we we could forget. Even if you don't really call yourself a Christian, You know that there's this voice inside of you, and at different times in your life, it's spoken up loud and clear and kicked you sometimes and said, don't do that. Don't go there. Don't say that. And we did it anyway. Hello. But we Christians, man, we're really aware of it. We've done a lot of wrong. Even after we knew what the right was that we were supposed to do. Because it turns out that knowing the right thing to do doesn't make us do the right thing. Can I hear an amen? And and maybe this is you and part of your history and part of your story. Maybe it's why you're not a Christian anymore. Maybe the first time you're back in church for a long time. Maybe you think, you know, I, I never really thought of it in those words, but I just found myself with my back towards the living God. I don't know when it happened or how it happened, but somehow, at some point in my life, I just found that I was turned away from God, and I was drifting, is the word that we've been talking about. And it didn't happen all at once. Like, you didn't go straight from, like, being a Christian to doing meth. Like, it wasn't, like, that quick. But there was this drift, and probably should have picked a better example I don't know, maybe that is your story. Like, you just go from zero to 60, man. I don't know. But we don't really think about it like that. But somewhere along the line, we found God becoming less and less important, church becoming less and less relevant. And we weren't really thinking about it like that. And it wasn't even intentional in our lives. But over time, we drifted. But here's the thing about the circumstances that cause us to drift. Sometimes it happens after kind of a, a run of what we might call bad luck, huh? And then it also happens after a run of what we might call good luck. Sometimes it happens on Monday, right? Sometimes it happens on Tuesday. Anybody here a Wednesday backslider? Don't raise your hand. Sometimes it happens on Thursdays or Fridays or Saturdays. Sometimes it happens on Sundays. Sometimes it happens in times of pressure, Sometimes it happens when times are good. Sometimes it happens when you're... It happens all the time! Hello! We all find ourselves in circumstances and situations that cause us to turn our backs and turn away from the living God. Now here's the really interesting thing about this. This early church leader is writing this document called Hebrews, warning about us drifting and turning away from the living God. And look where these early church leaders who were alive when Jesus was on the planet, who were eyewitnesses, who heard Jesus' own voice for themselves in some cases, look where they locate the solution. He said, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has an unbelieving heart that is sinful and turns away from the living God. The solution for individual drifting is found within the collective body of Christ. Which means you were never supposed to be a Christian on your own. If he had been from the south, this is where he would have said, y'all, y'all need to make sure that each and every one of you is okay. See, this is a big deal. This author's not writing to an individual. This author is writing to a group, which means if you're going to be a Jesus follower, you can't even do some of what you're supposed to do unless you belong to a Christian group, unless you're in a circle. This isn't an instruction to Jared. This isn't an instruction to any one of us individually. This is an instruction for all of us. Y'all see to it that none of you, no one of you, has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. And I just think it's so interesting that he puts the solution outside of us for addressing something that is broken and drifting inside of us, our hearts. Y'all see to it. See to it, brothers and sisters, that no one of you has an unbelieving heart because drift begins deep within. The drift that we have all experienced starts on the inside of us. The drift away from the living God starts with a temptation, it starts with a doubt, it starts with a question, it starts with a hurt. It starts for some of us with a good circumstance that kind of made you imagine, made us imagine that we got where we are on our own. And the drift begins deep within. And if nobody knows you, if nobody in your church family sees you or hears you or walks with you or talks with you, then no one will ever know that you are drifting. And people seeing you and hearing you and talking with you and walking with you. It's never going to happen here. It's never going to happen on a Sunday morning. Because on Sunday mornings, we come and we sit shoulder to shoulder in rows. And rows don't know what we don't show. Mm, I'm rhyming all over it today. Dr. Sue said the cat in... No, I'm just kidding. I won't... Rose don't know what we don't show. Hello. You guys know what I'm talking about. If you've been going to church for more than three months, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because you hopped in the minivan this morning, and you were biting each other's heads off and eating them for breakfast. Come on, your kid was acting just like your mother-in-law. Hello, somebody. That argument from yesterday is still there. What you spent yesterday, what you put on a credit card yesterday is still there, and you're getting an ulcer about it. You're still wondering about that. It's eating you up on the inside, and it's all bad in the minivan on the way here. And then you pull into that blessed parking spot, right? You, you, take, a, you take a deep breath and straighten your wig, right, and put your jaw back to human status because it came unhinged a little bit. like. And then you fix your face, and you smile like you sell cars for a living, like you just get out, and it's praise the Lord, brother. Mm. Can I hear a praise the Lord from somebody in the... Oh, praise the Lord, says, how are you doing? I'm blessed and highly favored, yes. (laughs) We do this. We all do this. We strut in here smiling and waving and clap our hands and sing our songs and check our watches during the message. And we look at people that we kind of know, a little bit know, sitting on the row next to us, sitting in the rows across from us, and rows don't know what we never show. And then we get back in the minivan, and boom, it's back on. Doubt's back, and anger's back, and fear is back, and hurt is back, and you're drifting, and nobody knows you're drifting when all you do is come and sit in rows because the drift begins deep within. And unless you give somebody access Unless you speak up and speak out face to face with someone. In other words, unless you get into spiritual relationships where somebody who loves Jesus loves you too and has the ability to speak into your life, you will turn your back on the living God eventually. I've seen it happen time and time and time again, and none of us are exempt from this. This happens to us all. It does. And the writer of this letter to Hebrews knows how this works. And so he gives the community, he gives the body, he gives the church collectively the instruction to care for the individual. It's interesting, isn't it? The drift begins in here, but the solution and the care for that drift on the inside is found outside of us, outside of ourselves. And then in verse 13, he starts detailing how we're supposed to see to it. He says, but encourage one another. And this isn't just like give each other a high five. It's not superficial. You might guess being in such an important document, it's a really deep and important word. It means to appeal to someone, to urge strongly to someone, to almost beg someone. So to get a picture, we're supposed to be in each other's lives so deeply that we can feel when one another start to drift. We're supposed to be so connected to somebody within the body of Christ that we can feel their heart and they can feel our heart. And our response to the negative drift that we feel in someone is to beg them, to urge them, to make them an appeal to them, to urge them strongly. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, see to it, y'all, this is your, you all's job. It's our job. So we have small groups. And we're always going to have small groups because this is the way that Christian life is designed. There needs to be somebody who notices when you don't show up. There needs to be somebody in your life that calls you if you haven't checked in with them in a while. You need to have somebody in your life that knows when your attitude has gone sour, that can check your language and check your disposition. That that way a brother or sister doesn't have to carry something on their own. So a sister doesn't have to feel like she's isolated and struggling. So a teenager can know that there is a safe place to bring their worries and doubts. And single dads and moms don't have to feel the weight of the world on their own. We need each other. We were designed for one another and when it comes to to protecting the individuals within the body of Christ the job and the task and the responsibility and the duty for protecting the one belongs to the everyone see to it y'all see to it turn around and tell five people around you see to it come on tell them five you can count Now, can you imagine if your Christian dad or Christian mom hadn't just sat in circles or hadn't just sat in rows, but it belonged to a circle? Can you imagine the difference that would have made on their faith? Can you imagine if your dad had been in a circle, been in a relationship with another brother in Christ where someone who loved him noticed when he started to drift? Can you imagine if your mom that doesn't really go to church anymore, never really you know, put the basics of faith into your life but maybe never gave you more than that. Can you imagine if your mom had had the support of a loving woman of God, someone who was maybe even closer than her blood sisters to encourage her and walk with her? Can you imagine the difference that would have made in your family of origin? Can you imagine the difference that would have made in your relationship growing up if somebody, if your family rather, had belonged to circles within the church body? Can you imagine the difference in your childhood? Can you imagine the difference in your teenage years? Can you imagine the difference in your early 20s? Can you imagine the difficulties and pain in your family history that would not exist if your family had belonged to circles and not just rows? Because see, for a lot of us, those families that we grew up in, those parents that we grew up with, those, they, we went to church. They went to church. Maybe they attended more frequently than you do. They were Christians. Maybe they still call themselves Christians, but they only ever sat in rows. And rows don't know what your family never showed. People in rows don't know. And so the writer of Hebrews is telling Christian, look, rows aren't good enough. Y'all need to see through it, need to see to it, that you're right there encouraging each other. And then in verse 13 of Hebrews 3, he goes on. And you want to know how often he prescribes this encouraging? You encourage one another daily. Daily. Get all up in there. Daily. Daily. Do life with each other. Be connected with each other so that you can detect their heart and encourage them daily. Well, are you sure it's supposed to be daily? And he goes on, he says in verse 13, he says, well, as long as it's called today. Is it today, anybody? Some of y'all still living in the past. Hello, there's another sermon right there. We'll just let it go. But this is relational. Hello, this is close, isn't it? For some of us who are introverts, this is uncomfortably close. For you extroverts, introverts aren't weird. They just don't like you very much. You know. Just like, <laughs> that's not the case. They do like you. But look, this is relational. You don't get to isolate yourself. You can't pull apart from the body of Christ. This is close. This is intentional. This is not like your religion is a one-time experience at an altar at the front of the church between you and some kind of priest or preacher or holy man. This is daily that someone has access into your life and that you have access into someone else's life on the daily. And why? Why is it so important? What is it that is, that's at stake? And he goes on in verse 13 and says, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And here's the thing about sin. This is kind of interesting as you read through the New Testament. The, the writers in the New Testament often, most of the time, would they actually kind of like personify sin. Or they make sin out to be like this force inside of us, almost like this, this hellish gravity. And, and they make it seem like this active, living thing inside of us. But sometimes we just think of sin kind of as like this list of rules that we break. And the early Christian leaders would say, no, no, it's more like this force inside of you, this gravity to pull you down and degrade you that's constantly tugging, you on, uh, tugging on you to drift. And we think of mostly, mostly of sin as things that we do. But he's like, no, there's this force inside of you that's actually actively at work to trick you. There is something on the inside of you that is actually actively at work to deceive you. It's trying to tear you down and make you turn your back on the living God and drift away. So from within ourselves comes this voice sometimes. And when somebody hurts us, or we're, when we're in circumstances that we don't think are best for us, we kind of get this, this rationale going on on the inside. Yeah, it's starting to get real in here, isn't it? And we start to look at a situation, or look at a relationship, or look at somebody in our life, and we think, well, well he deserves it. She practically forced me to do this. If, if everyone in my world knew what was going on, they'd understand why I should probably do this to them. If everybody in my world or on my job had the info and the dirt that I have, they would know that this is probably the way I should treat this person or do this thing or act in this way. And we begin to rationalize everything. I think I'd be better off if I think my life would improve if, and before long, we start believing these things because that force inside of us is this constant hellish dr- gravity that is pulling us down and pulling us away from God, and the writer of Hebrews knows the best counterattack and the best defense against that gravity pulling us away from God isn't you, and it's not me individually. The, the antidote and the solution and the best defense against, against that isn't an individual, it's a we, it's a group, it's a relationship, it's, it's, it's this, this person that you live life with, live spiritual life with face to face, and most of us have lived long enough to know that when we get isolated, we tend to drift away from God and can't really take the advice and the input from godly people that we need. We saw this in the David series so powerfully. We, we did this earlier in the year. When we get isolated, when we get angry and we become afraid, those are the times that the gravity of sin living in us feels its strongest. And just like David experienced with Abigail, it takes a voice from the outside to speak against that bad thinking on the inside. It takes somebody from the outside who wants what's best for us, speaking words of life into us to counteract that voice, to counteract that bad reasoning, to counteract that bad rationale. And if you don't have a voice on the outside, you'll listen to the only voice that you can hear ringing loud from the inside, and it will pull you away, and cause you to drift, and eventually cause you to turn your back on the living God. So that leaves us a question. All of us facing this voice at different times, and maybe this isn't you right now. Maybe your walk with God is good right now. That's fine. You've experienced this in the past, though, and it'll come at you again. But what is it that you keep telling yourself these days? What is it that was just the seed of a thought, but, but you feel it pulling you away From God. You feel it causing you to drift. And your heart's not really here. And your body barely got here this morning. Hello? But your heart is somewhere else. Your heart is not next to God's heart anymore. Some other idea, some other thing, some other thought has taken up residence between you and God. And you didn't mean for it to. And it wasn't intentional. But if you could see yourself, have kind of an out-of-body experience and see yourself, you would see yourself beginning to turn away from God, beginning that natural drift to move away from God. And this is so huge because most of us don't like to tell other people what we're thinking. Most of us don't want other people to know what's going on in our heads and our hearts because we know if we told somebody, they'd think that we'd gone crazy, They tell us that we've lost our mind. They might tell us that's the dumbest, most self-destructive thing I've ever heard you say. But here's the power of this principle. When you do have that face-to-face conversation, when you do put it out into the air, and when you say out loud what you have been telling yourself on the inside, and when they say it back to you and expose it, suddenly you see it differently, don't you? Suddenly it doesn't sound as rational. Suddenly realize how messed up it is. It's not as perfect anymore. It's not as appealing. It's not the ultimate solution anymore. You start to see all of its flaws and all of its shortcomings. And yes, they might think you're going crazy a little bit. But when you speak to someone who has taken on the responsibility of loving you and caring for you and being that voice that you need, they may see you as a little bit crazy at first, but I'm telling you, they're going to save you from a whole lot of crazy later. Hello? And you need these voices in your life. You cannot live for God on your own. I'm sorry to bring you that bad news, but I have great news. This is an incredible church family for you to join yourself to. This is a beautiful, a room full of beautiful people in here. I know y'all. Some of y'all I'd be willing to vouch for. God's brought you here. You're not here by accident. I don't care what your parents told you. <laughs> Hello. God brought you here. Why? Because you've been drifting. Come on, you've been drifting. You've been listening to that voice on the inside. You've been given in to the pool and you haven't been very intentional about getting close to God. And then just from what we know of Regular religion and how we're supposed to live, we just think that, well, it's up to me. I need to discipline myself. I need, I need, to, I need to do you know, this more. I need to do this more. I need to do this harder. I need to do this better. And you're looking for the solution to the brokenness inside of yourself, inside of yourself. And he's telling us, no, the solution to what's broken on the inside actually comes from the outside, from people who love you from people who can see you, who want the best for you, who can speak faith and life and encouragement and love and belonging and acceptance and purpose and direction, all of it into your life. Who can speak their own testimonies and their own stories of their own brokenness? Who can give your faith? Who can give you know just resuscitate your hope again? Because sometimes we lose hope when all we know is our own story and when all we know is our own perspective, we can lose hope. And there's somebody sitting just on the other row from you who's been where you are headed and they've come out the other side full of joy and full of life and full of radiance and full of renewed confidence in God's goodness and God's power and God's Provision, but if you don't live life face to face with them, you'll never hear it, you'll never know it, and you won't know when. And it'll kind of take you by surprise. But one day you'll wake up and you'll realize I've drifted and I've turned my back, or maybe I've turned my back again on the living God who loved me and gave Himself for me. And again. In your own life, you wish you'd had these voices before. In your parents' life, right, you wish your dad had a voice like this. You wish your older brother had a voice like this. You wish your younger sister had a voice like this. Wouldn't this have changed everything? Couldn't this have changed everything? Couldn't this have been the difference? It's the power of Christian community. It's the power of a faith family. It's the power of belonging to circles and getting out of rows because rows don't show what we never, rows don't know what we never let other people show or what we have. You guys got it. I <laughs> need a circle. Somebody come and punch me. Jason, stay seated. So if you're going to follow Jesus, you can't just come sit in a row. If you're really going to belong to sit here look, you can attend all the time. I promise you, we'll never close the doors. You can attend City Grace all the time, but you'll never really be a part of City Grace until you come, and don't just sit in rows, but you belong to a circle. And if you're going to experience the power of His church, listen, it's not found in all of the church services that you attend. In church services, we experience the presence and the closeness of God, but the power, hello, think about these verses in Hebrews chapter 3, the power that he has released into his church through the Holy Spirit, the power that can set you free, the power that can speak faith into you, the power that can speak hope into your despair, the power that can give light into your darkness, the power to keep us from drifting. It belongs to us together. It belongs to the church family together. It belongs to the community, and the family of faith. And then I want to give one last point, and then I'll let you go for today. And in verse 14, he goes on, and it seems like he kind of changes direction. It's like, where, where did this come from? But when you get to thinking about this, as I began to study this, it hit me so powerfully. He says, we have come to share in Christ. In other words, you've come to be a Christian if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. We have come to share in Christ if we hold our original conviction firmly To the end. We know we are Christians if we hold on to that original belief, if we hold on to that original conviction in a living God, if we hold on to that original conviction that we have that God was seen in the face of his son Jesus Christ and he has died as a covering and an offering for our sins. And the author in Hebrews, what he's doing in this verse is connecting what we've just said about circles with this idea of us holding on to our faith that if you're going to share in Christ with other believers, if you're going to be a Christian, it means that you never lose faith in that living God that some people turn away from. Now look, this is big. Stay with me. I want to try and put these two things together. It means that a little bit of drift in an area of life, a little bit of drift in your life that goes unchecked, a little bit of drift in your life that never gets seen by other believers, drift that happened while we were sitting in rows sometimes every single Sunday, that that drift has the potential to undermine our very faith in God. The individual drift, the unchecked drift, the gradual drift, what is seemingly so small at times drift, over time if you leave it untreated and unchecked and nobody else knows about it, eventually... You will find yourself having drifted so far from God that you don't even believe that there is a God anymore. That you're not even sure if he's a living God, if he's at all up there. That you're not even sure that prayer can work. That you're not even sure that the church has any purpose. The drift that makes its way into our character. The drift that makes its way into our finances into our relationships, into our behaviors, the addictions that we struggle with, if we don't have someone tell us that we're going crazy and that the voice inside of us is telling us the wrong thing, the writer is telling us that eventually it can cause us to lose out on believing in God. And here's the thing for a lot of us, this is our story. A lot of us have drifted away from God. A lot of us have turned our backs on God for whole seasons of life. Again, we stopped believing and we started doubting. And if you'll think back, when you allowed that thing into your life and when you finally realized that you had drifted from God, it wasn't because you stopped believing in God at first. It wasn't because you woke up one day and said, you know, I think I'm going to be an atheist today. It wasn't because you woke up one day and said, you know, I just don't believe that God hears or answers prayer anymore. No, You just went somewhere that you shouldn't have gone. You said some things that you shouldn't have said. You opened some doors that should have stayed shut. You ignored some warning signs and drove down some roads in life that should have stayed unexplored. And before you even realized what happened, time had passed and your faith in God was shaken. And you weren't even sure, really, what you believed anymore. Drift left unchecked over time, drift in different facets and areas of life where no one is there to speak to you, where no one is there to encourage you. Eventually, over time, it undermines your faith and it impacted your faith. And it's part of your story. And it's why you stopped going to church. It's why you put the Bible down one day and you never picked it back up again. It's why you prayed your prayer, your last prayer one day, and you never realize you didn't know that that was going to be the last time that you would pray. Because you stopped thinking that prayer had worked. And over time, gradual drift led you to a place where you didn't even believe in God anymore. And so he's saying, you've got to hang on to your original faith. You can't let that go. You've got to hang on to your original conviction. You can't let that go. And the way that you do that is by rooting out the deception of that sin gravity on the inside of you. And the way that you root out that deception is by speaking it out into the air with someone who loves you, with someone who sees you and knows you and has your permission to tell you that I think you're going crazy. They can speak to you and tell you there's hope. They can speak to you and tell you, I've been where you're headed. And I've come out the other side even more convinced in a beautiful and a faithful God. I've been through your pain. I've been through your time of darkness. And I've come out even more convinced on the other side that he is the God of all light. That in him there is no variation or shadow of turning. I love that verse in James 1. It talks about in God the father of lights in whom there is no variableness, no shadow of turning. Anybody ever seen a chandelier? And you know, like chandelier, you spin it. Mom used to have a chandelier over a dining room table. We used to have to clean it all the time because we did chores. We were good kids. I did them. Jason never did them. Do you guys know, this is really true. Jason, I'm going to throw you all under the bus today. When Jason got old enough to have to start mowing the lawn, he used to mow it messed up on purpose because he knew my dad would make me go back and mow it again and fix it. It's true. He's a horrible, horrible person. We used to clean that chandelier and you'd spin it. When you'd spin the chandelier all on the wall, you could see the shadows move. It would just turn. And then as you look at that chandelier, if it was a little bit bright, you know, you could turn, get a certain way, and one of, the, one of the arms would kind of block the light, and then you could see a little bit better. There was a shadow there. Depending on the way that you looked at that chandelier, it was bright and shining on its own, but depending on the way you looked at it, sometimes there were shadows there to kind of block the light. I love what James says in him. There's no variableness. There's no shadow of turning. That it does not matter how you look at God. It does not matter your vantage point. It does not matter your darkness or your trial. He's always God. He's always faithful. He's always gracious. He's always full of mercy and love. Come on, can you love him with me this morning? For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.